everybody, it's Jim Mallard here. Welcome to the Mallard Report. The Mallard Report is recorded in front of a live virtual audience on the Duck Pond. Tuesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern, live. Mallard.com. M-A-L-L-I-A-R-D.com. One more thing before we start. Let me turn it over to my friend that you may know from Ancient Aliens and the Curse of Oak Island and many other things. Robert Clotworthy. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed on the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. On the Malliard Report, the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the show are solely those of the hosts and guests, and not necessarily of Evergreen Podcasts, KillerPodcast.com, sponsor or affiliate, or any other individual or group. In case you're wondering, the intro is 50 seconds. There we go. Uh, (laughs) I redid it, and I was just talking to Dave, and I couldn't remember how long it was. So somebody out there needs to remind me. The intro is 50 seconds. Anyways, my guest tonight is David Perodin, Dr. David Perodin, the author of Velocity of Information. There it is. um, In the School of Errors. David, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. So, um, yeah, it it is warm here in southern Wisconsin. And when I say warm, 88 and humid. And a week ago, it was 40 and windy and snowy. So it's it was 40 like, with 88 percent humidity. <laughs> it was crazy. So, so I'm like I'm trying to quickly adapt, you know, to this this uh, new climate that we have here in 40 out the past 48 hours. But uh, I'm doing great. And Jim, thank you so much for inviting me uh, back to the show. I love the Mallory report and, uh, you know, I've been fortunate to have been a guest in the past. So thank you for uh, having me back on the show. I I want to thank you for coming back on and I want to thank you for the book and all the the fun conversations we've had. Okay. But enough of the love. Let's, let's get to the, uh, the topic (laughs) du jour of the night, the velocity information. So for the viewer listener out there who hasn't had the opportunity to pick that up, give me the, uh, the scoop. Yes, yeah, so it was um, in February of 2020, right? I was doing a professional presentation about safety, right, and planning ahead for different safety events. And it was in that presentation, I added a five-minute part at the end, and I said, you know, you might want to start preparing for the pandemic, <laughs> right? <laughs> it was just one of those things that started to be on the news a little bit. And, of course, you know, a few weeks later, you know, March of 2020, uh, we're in in the pandemic. I realized at that moment, um, I had the opportunity to write about chaos as it was unfolding in real time. Uh, So I I went about doing that, right? I was observing what was happening around me because I expected this was going to be unlike anything we had encountered, right, in 100 plus years. Um, and, And it was probably going to last a long time right and this would unfold in ways which we didn't know so i start to do an outline um, reached out to my publisher for my first book and said hey i have this an idea about writing about how humans react to long periods of chaos more than like a couple days you know chaos it would last months and uh, i put together the proposal they approved it and i went ahead and i started to you know document and write and research what this looked like in in the past and start to bring that did interviews right it, i was going and interviewing not just interviewing people about the pandemic and and you know protest and and things like that shortages but interviewing people like um uh, robert travis an alaskan crab boater and saying hey like you know you're on a crab boat for two seasons over 100 days uh, how did how did you survive chaos like and not just mentally burning out because he said some people did you know like two weeks and they'd be like oh, i can't handle this anymore and and stuff like that so um i thought it was it was an incredible asset to uh to again have this book um published it was came out in april it's in uh, hard copy ebook and paperback and then it'll also be an audiobook but that will come out next year it's done <laughs> it's just my contract can't come out until next year um so so yeah um it what so one of the one of the things that i wrote about right away in the book and i wasn't anticipating this uh jim um so schools right schools closed down um by state orders 
in March of 2020 and, and my kids like weren't going to school and my youngest daughter was in elementary school and I could start to see like, you know, she was wondering, well, what's going on, right? Because I always went to school. Now school's closed. I can't go to the playground because that's closed. My friends can't come over. I can't go to their place. I can't go with, you know, mom and dad to the stores, right? Uh, so I could start, and her friends were emailing her and, and telling her what they thought was going on. They thought that the playgrounds were being ripped out, right? And and all of, you know, the, the stores are being shut down and, and things like this. So um, I I was watching her uh, get very anxious, right? And, and I didn't know what to tell her because, well, I could tell her what was going on, but I really had to take her, right? I had to... I had to, I sat down and said, what's, con what's concerning you? And I had my own concerns, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I, dad's got worries here too. You know, I'm, I want to figure out what's happening at the armory on the side of town here with the airport. You know, are they, are they bringing in, you know, pallets of supplies and, you know, a bunch of Humvees there or what's going on? But um, so, so we sat down and, made this list of places we wanted to to go so she wanted to go to her school she wanted to go to a couple playgrounds and you know we go to the walmart in town and i said well let's go to the hospital too um, and then you know the armory and so we had you know maybe like seven eight places where we had been before and so i got the tripod and the camcorder I said, all we're going to do is, is just like, a, we're going to make a little show, right? Like, uh, we're not going to put it live on the internet, but, and she loves to do video editing type um, stuff. So I said, you know, we'll, let's just, we'll pretend we're doing the news, right? And, um, and I wrote about that in the book. So there's, there's a chapter devoted to that of um, helping young people uh, move through time because for her, everything kind of stopped, right? You're used to new experiences as a, as a kid you try to pattern this to other things and you're like, you know, it hasn't happened before. So you kind of, you, you get stuck. And, and um, so I needed to transition her forward. I needed to, to give her new events. So we actually did 13 of these videos and over like four months, uh, but we went out to the park and set up the tripod and, and yeah, the police tape is around it. There's a picture in the book of the, the park we went to, which is pretty close to our house. And then there's this big pile of sand, and that's where her friend was saying, oh, they're like digging out the, the park and, or the playground. And it, that wasn't the case. The sand was there because they were putting in volleyball courts. But um, but yeah, if you're maybe, you know, nine years old, right, driving by with your parent and you look at that, you'd be like, wow, like what's going on? And it was amazing because I would say, what do you think you're going to see? So we do a little bit before, like, what do you think is going to be happening at Walmart when we go to in the parking lot? And then when we got there, you know, like, what do you actually see? Well, you can only go in one way, right? And people are kind of spaced apart. I'm like, okay. And, uh, you know, why are they spaced apart? And then I would say, well, there's, there's, there's X's that you stand on. And then, you know, they space people out when they go in, but you can still go in. And, um, you know, that hasn't changed. Like, it's not shut down. And she got to go to her school. She took a picture. You know, she's standing in front of the door where it says, you know, school's closed or whatever. Uh, but it became very real for her. She's saying, I observed, which is, is huge. I, I have another part in the book of how when people say I observed versus just repeating, like they said, you know, they said this is happening. And kind of like her friend, they said they're ripping out the playgrounds. And all of us, like we hear on the media or people who just kind of pass headlines to us, um, which is kind of a human nature, right, to pass negative, sensationalized news instead of of digging into it. So she got really good at, at uh, I observed it was great for me to be able to study and to write about this. And, and, uh, it, and for my own, uh, I had a member check network, which I wrote about in the book too. And, uh, Brian Bowden, who I think was in the, in the chat here he is, just yes. a moment ago. He yeah. Still is. Brian, um, was in my member check network and actually and Brian's in the book. So, um, and he is, uh, and I introduced Brian as uh, being on the travel uh, channel. So, <laughs> so I gave him a, I gave him an, an awesome title, which he was. Yes. So I was, yeah. I was like, uh, but, but Brian was part of my member check network and I had about five, five, six people for about every three days. I would check in with them and, and we would say, this is like March, April, May, June, July, 
um, what are you observing? And Brian did little videos and he would share them with, with the group about four minute long videos of here's what is happening in his part of the Bronx. And I had another friend, um, Charles Mack, who is the head of IT University of Pittsburgh Medical, and Chuck would tell us what was happening there. And not like the medical stuff, not like who's being admitted or who not, who's not being admitted, but stuff like that they increased telemedicine in two weeks by 10 times, right? That they were taking, um, he was, he moved in to work. He couldn't go home. So he had a couch and a, a dorm fridge and he just lived there training people nonstop and any device that they could use, a tablet, a phone, an old laptop, a security camera, you know, as, as a webcam. I mean, he was on top of it. I, I told him, I talked to him the other day and I said, I wish I would have called that heading for you. I would have called you the Pittsburgh Batman. <laughs> I said, cause you were the Batman. You were the hero, right? That university of Pittsburgh needed at the time. And, and I, and I don't know what I, what I had for that. But I said, you were from now on, you were the Pittsburgh Batman. And, uh, but, but, you know, he was the first one also to get essential papers. So he took a picture of his essential papers and he was stopped several times on the way to and from work. Um, he also had Pittsburgh, um, their newspaper. I don't know whatever the, the newspaper is in Pittsburgh, but you could log in you, or you, you could access through the newspaper on your phone and it would show you where the COVID positive areas were in town. So in, so I have a picture of that in the book. He sent me a screenshot. So imagine like if you go on your phone and, and you can see your neighborhood and it's like, oh, like it wasn't specific to a house, but it could be like this area has a high density of blue. It's like very blue, meaning there's a lot of COVID. So maybe like, I don't know, you don't deliver pizzas there. I, I mean, no one really knew what this meant. So we were watching it. And then I had another friend in Washington state who their police department he took, we have a video of it. Their police department on their website wanted you to report gatherings. And, and uh, they had a Google map. You could drag over the address of the person. You could take your own photos. So we were kind of like, well, you know, it, there, there's two, right, two reasons you do that, right? It, during the start of a, of a chaos event, either you try to enroll people to give them purpose or you're trying to increase your kind of enforcement. <laughs> so it's like, which one of these was it? Um, and we saw things happening, you know, like uh, the the coin shortage, you know, as that started to roll and what it meant to us. And like, should you should you get more currency? Should you try to up your credit? Like what was what was going to happen? Um, one of the things that was interesting is Brian. Um, when Brian observed that the um, the yard workers were out in the Bronx with their leaf blowers and cleaning stuff up and he said, hey, like that is something two weeks ago, right? The, everybody would have been calling the police and, you know, how can you be out here and, and everything? So he said, that was a turning point. So having this network of, of maybe five, six people that I was checking in with every three days and, and we were, you know, doing these, these observations of what we were authentically observing was, was great for finding out what was happening, right? And how we could kind of prepare ourselves again, you know, we're, we're going to run into a situation where you're going to be credit only for what you're paying for. And I did the, the research on it too, Jim. Um, so I had research studies of saying, you know, if you, with anything, if you can get, you know, about five people together and not like, fa this is one of the things. So if you go back to the, what, to 1918 pandemic, right? If you got five people together and you're having them observe what and tell you what's going on, they're probably all people in your house or like people on your block or on your farm, they're not from around the country, right? Cause you don't really have a means to communicate with them. So, um, but if you can get five people from different areas and, and to tell you it's, they're all observing and giving you information that increases your intelligence of what's happening, like through the roof. And I think that was a big part of the book too. You don't need these huge complicated networks and systems. You really need, you know, about five people you can, trust who are who are not going to be sucked into the they call it negative vicarious rehearsal or like just the where the bad news overtakes you and that's all you can think about and so um so yeah i mean <laughs> i guess 
So, so those, those things are in the book. And I interviewed 10 people. I talked about Robert Travis. I interviewed Nikolai Razavayu. Nikolai Razavayu was a Soviet national cyclist in the 1980s. So he was 20 years old in 1986 when the Chernobyl nuclear disaster happened in April of uh, 1986. Of course, uh, very close to Kiev. He had to bike in Kiev the next day. And he said, you know, um, so in Kiev, right, he said they're soaping up the streets and, you know, hosing down buildings, but they don't tell you what's going on, right? <laughs> and and uh, so he snuck out at night with his Selga transistor radio because the KGB would lower their jamming signals at night. So he could, he could hear Radio Liberty coming in. Um, you know, maybe from like Poland or Sweden or whatever. And then uh, he he was able to get to a high point and get radio reception. And then they were talking about, you know, the Chernobyl nuclear fire, right? And radiation and stuff like that. And even then he had, you know, he's like, well, you know, how truthful is this? This is, you know, propaganda trying to be, you know, is this accurate? But then um, he was seeing other things, right? He When he did a practice run or practice uh, bike um, trek, he biked past nearly a kilometer of buses that had lead shields on top of them, and they were there to evacuate the children. And then also, um, so I think like, you know, Kiev has like 2 million people in it. So all of these things were starting to add up. And, uh, you know, there were rumors going around. And, and then as bicyclists, right, uh, you know, Soviet national cyclists, they were told to drink red wine. Um, that's kind of weird, right? Like I bike and don't drink wine before I bike, but uh, the thought was it would it would uh, mitigate the effects of radiation. So, um, but that that was amazing to hear when you're not getting state information right from the Soviet Union, you're not being told what's happening. Face validity. What do you actually see in front of you? Face validity. And as he said, when I saw the roads being soaked up, when I saw the buses, um, you know, these were things telling me something big is going on here so uh, that is a fascinating interview i interviewed linda stone who was an executive with microsoft and linda is an, an expert on attention how we use our attention and one of the things that i learned is uh, and I, di I didn't know this um you know this whole thing of kind of multitasking right because you're at home now, right? Instead of going to, to a, a job, so your home, your home is your office. Maybe your, your kids are at home doing online school and just everything else. And she said, you know, you, you can only attend to so many things. You, we use our attention where we focus on something and then we focus on something else and focus on something else. It's serial. It's very rapid. We shift it. We don't really split it. So that was something too of saying, you know, uh, in the book, like understand your attention and, if you can do if you can do a meeting if, if, with audio only versus Zoom, people will typically have a much higher attention because they don't have to encode all of the the video, uh, you know, the the visuals of it. So um, I thought that was really that was really a, a cool interview. And um, I'll give you one more, and then it was Aaron Sawyer. Aaron Sawyer owns Redline VR Virtual Reality in Chicago. And he, so his virtual reality business was just thriving. Uh, so people come in and, you know, they put on the 3D, you know, goggles, right? And the haptic wearables. So, you know, you're fighting your zombie. I mean, it actually kind of feels <laughs> like you're doing something, right? And his business was deemed non-essential. So he was shut down. And so he was like, whoa, you know, how am I going to keep things going? Um, and a weird thing happened, though, Jim. So in Chicago... You know, people who were told, you know, you have to stay at home, you can't come into the office. So they're in a tiny, like, you know, apartment or something like that. They start to show up at his virtual reality place and they're knocking on the door and they're saying, hey, like, can we come in here and just, you know, do our remote work for an hour or two? We'll pay you. And he's like, I'm not at office. I can't do this. And then um, he looked into it and for $250, he could get a license to be in office. So he and I have the ad that he put online in the book. He put an ad out and he said, "Hey, um, you can rent office space. I don't know, like fifteen dollars a day or like sixty dollars a week. Something novel, right?" And people did it. 
they they came in and these stations that were virtual reality gaming stations you just put you know like a shower curtain between them and people came in and they had the wi-fi and and so one of the things that's really neat about that is not so much aaron sawyer pivoting to turn into an office but it's the fact that people in chaos people who have the routines really disrupted they they still need to do a start and end ritual and that's what, and I would say, interview these people, ask them why they're coming to you. And he said, you know, they're saying, hey, like, I'm getting up at two in the morning to check work emails. Like, I, I, I'm so, I, I'm just so used to a start and end. I can't do this, right? I, I need some place to go. So that, that was a fascinating part of, of the book, too, of how, you know, we need rituals. We need a start and end time. It's actually called Parkinson's Law. And so like, what do you, you know, what do you do for, you know, yourself or for your kids or even, you know, could be your parents or other people who've, who've lost this kind of start and end time to things, you know, you, you superimpose it, you put it back in. Um, so that, that was really cool. Like I, I interviewed, <laughs> I interviewed Larry Lawton, America's biggest jewel thief. And I had one question for him and it was, you know, about face validity, how do you get information And you know, Larry Lawton, 1.5 million, you know, YouTube followers and, and uh, and I said, how'd you find out about 9-11? Because, you know, Larry Lawton spent a lot of his time, you know, in a, a solitary confinement, right? And, you know, really um, just, and he said, nobody asked me that. So he's going through the process of how information goes through prison and the prison system was in lockdown on 9-11. So like nothing was coming in and out. So uh, I it was amazing to do this interview and to write about it in the book of, how do you get information to and kind of your traditional streams of information get shut down? Um, so, so it is, it is a fascinating, um, it, it, so it's very conversational when you, when you go through it, it's uh, 208 pages. Um, and yeah, the, the early reviews have been, been great about it. Uh, I, I think, I don't think there's anything out there that objectively, addresses how humans function in long periods of chaos, right? I'll say long, like more than 90 days. Um, and it, it doesn't tilt into a conspiracy theory or kind of political leanings. It, it just goes very objectively, you know, down the center of the row, but there's a lot, there's a lot in it. Um, so, but yeah, there we go. <laughs> okay. So, Oh, I've got a question for you and I've got a question for Germantown runner in the pond here. Um, I was thinking I wanted to give the the book a gold star, but that kind of seems cheesy and not off-brand. So for the people on the pond, I need to figure out what my award for books is so we can give it to books that we like around here. Anyways, back to you. Um, Amazon, where can people find you and find the book before we start diving into some of the more of the gritty of the rest of the world? Right. 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 Uh, probably the easiest way to find me is safetyphd.com. That's my website, safetyphd.com, well, which is which is current. So, you know, there's information about me, um, information about the books. I do a, a podcast, the Safety Doc podcast, which I also reference in the book because sometimes the only way I, I could really get to people was through the podcast, right? <laughs> so that's how I got Larry Lawton. He was a guest on my podcast, and we did another interview. So safetyphd.com. Um, the Safety Doc podcast has 181 episodes, and then I do a, a write-up on those. So um, a lot of things in the book. And recently, like the last few months, I've kind of taken parts of the book and have done readings. Um, and the book is available, obviously, Amazon, um, places that sell book, your local bookstore, you know, if you can support your local bookstore, but Barnes & Noble. and uh, But, yeah, it'll be easy to find that. When you're searching for that, you'll also find my first book, School of Airs, which um, is coming out in paperback in summer. So that book will have a uh, you know more affordable price point. Plus, audiobook on that one comes out in summer, narrated by me. And uh, and you know you'll you'll see that. But Philosophy of Information has this beautiful blue cover with this. Nice. Uh, this <laughs> I yeah, I love what the my publisher did with this there were five options on the cover we narrowed it down to it and this one was just um it's just amazing um so the so so the book immediately is like you know it's your, it's your coffee table book right it's the book on the shelf you're like what is that so this is philosophy of information 
So, speaking of, okay, so this is this is going to be a fun segue because this ties to a Germantown runner question, but I've got to bring it up. Uh, I was on your show. I was on like fifty nine or something like that. We talked about the um, the text messages over in Hawaii about how that was short term misinformation though, but it was pretty scary. But Germantown runner wants me to ask you, according to an appearance on CNN, I have to mention that because that's causing some problems in the chat room. Uh, FDA okay. chief <laughs> Dr. Robert. Cutliffe, uh, asserted that the leading cause of death in the United States is online, quotes, misinformation. Is it? Oh, yeah, I think I saw that. I mean, what a crazy quote to put out there, right? So, I mean, how would you even try to measure that, you know? So, um, I would say no, right? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't see that. Now, um, of, I would say it's this book um, gives you like, like tools and shortcuts and processes, again, that member check network, things like that, to help you get more reliable information. But it also opens your, your mind to, um, we, we are in a place, like we're getting close to intersecting where it's going to be hard to authenticate some information, right? Here's an example. So I wrote about how Fox Sports um, during the 2020 Major League Baseball season, um, put Avatar fans in the stands, and they and they put it in, and they would talk about it as they did it. There was actually a tweet of like 37 seconds, and they said, "Well, here's a game between like the Cubs and the Brewers, and we can make the stadium look like it's 80 percent full and Brewers fans." and And so they're showing this, and I'm like, "Wow, that is that is amazing," and that's also terrifying because you could do that for crowded a protest right or you could do that for a crowd outside of a grocery store or something i mean there's so many ways you could deep fake and avatar realism uh, which i talked about on pbs back in 2019 so you know there's these things where i i'm getting more and more nervous like when <laughs> when the the current administration came out with the the disinformation czar i thought Okay, like that person might be the 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 face of trying to get at deep fakes and avatars and and bots and algorithms, uh, but that wasn't the case at all, right? <laughs> it, that person didn't come out with that platform. Was more of saying we're going to just take existing statements from people or people's positions and then we will amend them to uh, put a filter of truth. And I'm like, that is, that's, wow. Um, you know, not where I would be putting my resources right now, considering uh, where we're at with, with deep fakes and avatar realism. Um, so, yeah, velocity of information, if, you know, you, if you're going to be there someday actually seeing something, right, in 10, 15 years, but are you really seeing it and experiencing, or is it like a holographic uh, event that's happening? We're not quite there yet, but, I mean, it gets people thinking, how carefully we have to be stewards of our information and working together, you know, with that. So, um, but yeah, I, I saw that, uh, <laughs> I saw that today and I'm like, no, I don't, I don't believe misinformation. I think it's mosquito bites that's killing most of the people, <laughs> so at least where I live. Could be a lot of things. <laughs> so, yeah. So the legend Germantown runner has another question. I'm glad he's back and healthy and doing well. By the way, he's he was he's on the mend. I think I I can fairly say that certainly for him. Um, I'm going to argue the point that remote learning was a failure. I mean, my my kids do it and are fairly successful at it. But overall, of course, my kids go to a cyber charter school, which was designed to teach kids online, compared right. to school districts who are just oh right. shit, we've got to do this. So I mean, there's right. I mean, there's difference, but. Um, during the shutdown, I mean, how far, I mean, he wants to know, did that set kids back on a mass scale or whatever? I'm assuming it did because, like I said, I know I was talking to some parents who had kids still in the brick and mortar and then they got shut down and they were getting packets and all kinds of crap. So. Right. Right. It, yeah. And I and I teach, you know, university level uh, classes for school administrators. I teach three a year. So in addition to, you know, my own kids and monitoring kind of what they were getting and how they were required to interact at certain times of the day, log in. And I had, a, I had a pretty good feel for what was going on. Right. So 
as you said, Jim, you're right on. Most of this was never meant to be moved from brick and mortar to virtual, like, in, or even toggle back and forth. So the fidelity in that, no one had ever studied that. It's It was a big mess um, pretty much everywhere, right? And so I, I think that's, that's pretty certain. Um, one of the things, I think it showed, I mean, some capabilities that, you know, you, things that could be done if they were put together, you know, the right way and stuff. But um, will it show up as this big achievement gap? And I'm not completely sold that that's going to, to manifest in the next eight or 10 years. Um, I think, you know, it's, I, I don't, I don't know if what we're teaching right now, I think things are changing so rapidly, right? I mean, the skills that kids need it to, for, where we're going as a society, you know, coding and um, systems knowledge and being able to adapt in addition to everything. I, I, I don't know. I, I think there will be some aspects of this um, that are, are being um, amplified and it's actually hurting. So here, here's a case in, in Minnesota um, last this past school year, Minnesota was directed to do um, supplementary education at their school. So basically saying that we know that the kids are behind because we went online. So this year you have to teach what would you would have taught last year plus this year. Well, how do you do that, right? Because you already have everything slotted into a certain amount of time and you're not increasing the length of day for kids. So, and you're not just going to dump all this extra stuff onto kids. Like, um, so there were just weird ways that people tried to, to get with this, but, uh, I, I I don't know. I, I'm kind of more like this researcher, more skeptic on, I I, I think there are some things that are going to come out of this um, that we will be surprised at in a positive way. I don't know what those those will be, but I, I, I just, I don't know if this like minus one or two year skills thing will show up. The, where it's going to show up though, I will make an amendment to that. Where it will show up is speech language skills some a speech language pathologist and i i saw this last year um younger kids who are having um some difficulty with especially sound production s's t's z's th's when you wear a mask and i wrote about this in the book um objectively through the american speech language hearing association uh, they were checking it and the mask would knock down the decibel level I don't but six decibels or whatever. But if so, if you're trying to learn like an S and TH and Z sounds in the front um, of your mouth and it's covered up by a mask, right? Um, kids weren't getting the visual feedback on that. And also they weren't getting the audio feedback. So a lot of those are showing up a lot of speech, especially um, speech articulation sounds, not so much language, but um, yeah, kids, when I when I'm a speech therapist, right? If I work with kids, it's you know, look at me. This is how you you know do the L sound. You know, put your tongue out a little bit and put your teeth down like you're biting in the end of your tongue, and you know, like oh, and so you're so visual with that, and that innately is just there when kids are learning. Now, again, you have a mask on. The kid has you know a mask on, so you can't quite hear what what they're saying either. Um, so I actually did therapy sessions with some students. Um, who were struggling with articulation and kind of came out of retirement to to get on. And uh, I did teletherapy with um, a handful of, of students where, you know, I didn't wear a mask. They wear a mask, right, because teletherapy. Um, and, and we worked really hard and, and brought out those sounds that weren't, that weren't there uh, because of the natural feedback you weren't getting. So I think that's where it's going to manifest. It'll manifest... I mean, there'll be other areas, but, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, that's good. That's what we're, we're driving towards, and that's kind of the information I want to get out. But I, I, I've got another uh, interesting follow-up to all that. You're right about the sounds and the um, the technical end of it. Let's talk about the practical end of it, where communications within groups. Because, like you said, go, going from Zoom back into whatever university, either the, the, school, the classroom or the, the office or wherever – there's a difference of communications between looking at a camera and looking at a screen versus looking at your coworkers or your classmates. Yeah. 
Yeah, right. Um, just understanding the dynamics of how to take turns and interact with your group. And right now, everything's socially distanced. And uh, so so those things get quirky. I had, I had one of my new um, superintendents. So <laughs> the first time uh, superintendent in, in and he was in, in class and um, in the graduate class that I was teaching. And he talked about a socially distanced fire drill that they had had at their <laughs> elementary school. And, and so he gets into this a little bit. And then, um, you know, we, we just talked about it kind of as a group. And, and he didn't realize until we started to talk about it, right, that, of course, the pressure was there to do socially distance everything. So you're applying social distance. It's It becomes part of your lexicon, right? So it's not just vocabulary. If I say social distance to you, you know I'm telling you basically to stay six feet away from me. So um, so that got conveyed in weird ways in schools. So again, this fire drill where students were supposed to spread out in a classroom and then like one would leave and then they would count to like one, two, three, and then the next kid would leave and they'd have to, and I'm just like, but you never would do it that way, right? Like you, that would never happen or it well, should never happen. I'm sitting here thinking if this was a real fire and you were exiting the building this way, which kid becomes um, a victim? Right, because of the timing right. of this all. No, no, right. Uh, you know, abs- absolutely. So, you know, there so weird things like that. And, um, and, and, and so we saw these, yeah, transferred back and forth into trying, people trying to adapt these. Um, and it, it just, it, it was pretty, I don't know. Um, I, but, but yeah, I mean, people were trying to do the best that they could. It was just, it was real nonsensical when you just stood back. And you looked at it and said, well, right. I mean, a fire drill, we get everybody out as fast as we can. There would never be a change to that. So, um, yeah, I, I think, you know, just the uh, social skills, right. Too, if I, uh, and this, this natural loss as kids on, you know, what you're doing together at a playground or kickball or things like that. And, you know, dividing up teams and, and things and all of those, kind of natural things that happened that didn't happen and really couldn't happen in that remote setting. Um, I don't know how fast kids will, will kind of pick that up, um, what that'll look like. So yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. So the other, okay. So, uh, well, you're familiar. Well, we're not going to, we're not going to bash my local school district first and foremost. Okay. This is informative information for the record. Uh, they didn't renew the last superintendent, right? So they hired a new one. He was here for all of less than a year. And then the school board found out via the internet that he accepted a position in another district and didn't bother to tell them. Yeah, that's not classy. That's not the way you want to go out. So, um, oh my God. Especially when you have uh, two years left on your current deal. Yeah. Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's yeah that's unfortunate um the thing and the thing is superintendents for example on a, this was back in school of heirs when that came out in 2019 you know the a superintendent will last two to three years in a position and that's it and they're going somewhere else because it's highly political and your school board that get voted for you to be hired you know they get voted out and so there's a new school board, maybe they don't like you and your initiatives. And it's just a position that doesn't have a lot of longevity. Now, you can be a superintendent for a long time. It's just you have to keep switching districts in order to do that, even in kind of the best case scenarios. There's there's just a, a lifespan on that position right now. But um, but yeah, so so the whole thing, right, continuity just gets crazy. And how do you do, how do, you do this whole thing of... Um, and masking, right? So, you know, I I didn't write about it in the book, but I I was dealing with this nonstop with my students. And some of my my students would come in in my superintendent class and they'd say, "Hey, like our district was just sued for like its mask policy." So I'd find the lawsuit, and we would break down the lawsuit of saying, "Okay, what is what are they claiming, and what does this likely mean for you? Like, you know, are are your your files going to be harvested by a law firm and they're going to go through like how you 
made decisions on masking or not masking, how you're sanitizing things. And so we really broke it down. Um, but that was so weird uh, from, what, you know, school to school, like how they would would sanitize, mask, or <laughs> athletics, right? Um, some schools would make you wear a mask if you're playing basketball. Others wouldn't, and it was like whatever the home school did would be the rule. And, I mean, it was so weird. I mean, like nothing was consistent. And one of the questions I asked um, was with environmental services because I wrote an article about MRSA, the the skin-eating bacteria, right, the, the flesh-eating bacteria. I wrote an article maybe three, four years ago, and I said, you know, it's a pretty big issue in schools, and uh, especially in weight rooms and locker rooms and other things. But uh, but how – so schools measure for MRSA. They measure for mold. That's very common. You probably have heard of it or, or you know, in the chat. You probably hear, like, this school is going to be closed two weeks for mold mitigation black mold or something like that that's i was in a i was in two school districts where that happened that's that's not uncommon so i went to these environmental agencies and i said can you test for the vi- the you know the virus on hard surfaces or like during a basketball game could you do an air sample and they're like sure we can do all of that <laughs> i mean they're like absolutely and then i said does anybody ask you to do that and they said absolutely not absolutely nobody is asking us and so my question was well why not and i thought the question my answer to that was well if you find out that you know the virus is in the air even though kids are wearing masks during a basketball game or whatever um what do you do then or if it's in you know the surface in a school if it's on a wall or on tables or you know kind of wherever what do you do um do you shut the whole place down what's your mitigation um so i think there there was a there were some schools in texas i think that made it public and just said we don't want to know because we're we don't want to deal with the possible mitigation efforts we don't want to deal with having to shut down the whole district and at that time nobody really knew i mean there were schools buying ultraviolet lights you know and custodians would go around with these things these ghostbuster backpacks with uh uh, you know, fungicide, germicide, whatever, and spraying it on stuff. And I'm like, that's just theater. Like, you, you don't know unless you're actually going in and measuring, taking these samples, like with mold, like you, you could do this. So, you know, again, not, not so much in the book, but I think it goes to my mindset in the book of how do you objectively get information um, to to verify things, right? So in that case, you know, going right to a few of these environmental services companies, and to say that work with schools on these other things. Could you do this? Yep. <laughs> Anybody asking you? No. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, yeah, but then, like you said, you don't want to be the liability and the mitigation and all the other things that go with knowing. Once you know something, you're on the hook for it. But if you don't know, you don't know. Yeah, and, and they weren't required to do it, right? So, yeah, no one was going to go down that, that road. <laughs> so, <laughs> Wow. So, back to the uh, the internet information thing. I think you mentioned that the uh, pandemic of nineteen eighteen almost mixed those numbers up, um, but close enough. Either way, we've got so much information now that our head spins. I think, right? right. Back in the day, they got a newspaper if they are lucky. No, you're right. That's it. Yeah, newspaper. Yep. So, I mean, we're getting information. I'm getting information every fifteen seconds now. Right. Yep. Um, on my on, from my chat room, right? So, um, how I mean, how did that impact us when we? I mean, because I mean, misinformation, yeah. real information, just information, 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 information. So, so I wrote extensively about that. You're right, on Jim. So, one of the things I said is, you know, in the cell phone age where we are at right now, it's nonstop, um, and it's something where remember you know we were we were all getting these emails from hey like you shopped at target or you know calvin klein or or costco and we're here for you you know and all this we got these um these emails and all everything was we could like you know chuck mack getting that map of pittsburgh and in real time you know he said i could log i I could see what was happening um so that type of thing if you if you don't unplug from it right um, it'll burn you out just flat out. It's called um, finite voltage. 
it's a term from John Apple in World War II where you, you look at soldiers in high-stress situations, and soldiers, once they got to about 90 days without a break, they would either be killed, captured, mental collapse, or missing in action. But largely they see this mental collapse um, of soldiers who are in stressful situations, not necessarily conflict. You could be like a sniper, um, right, and be in a very high-stress situation, but if you were in there for like 90 days and didn't have a break... So there's this thing called wet bulb effect. And I did a podcast on it uh, pretty recently, and I wrote about this wet bulb effect where it's kind of like humidity, right? It's it like today, actually, where I'm at, the, it's hot and it's humid. So if you go outside, if you sweat, it, you don't evaporate, you don't cool down. So when we get all this information coming from our phones and the every, you turn on the TV, right, and everything, especially back in March, April, is about here's how to sanitize your phone and, you know, ABC Nightly News. You know, if you use this antacid, it might be promising in, you know, uh, mitigating the virus so people go out and get that and everything people were talking about every phone call every whatever it was and um and so yeah um needing to to aggressively kind of use that parkinson's law and saying i'm going to you know (laughs) i know it's hard right but i'm only going to consume some of this at certain times or i'm going to stay with my member check to always kind of bring me back to an objective more objective reality um but there were people that lost it with this finite voltage. And I wrote about some of those situations where, uh, you know, people living in a small town in, I don't know if it was Mississippi, like less than 300 people were convinced, you know, that um, the town was, was going to uh, riots and, and protests and, and all of this. And, and nothing was happening in that town, but right. It was, they were seeing it on the news. There was nothing close to them happening like that. Um, but you can, and you have to watch this, not only in yourself, right? This, this whole negative expectation. So back in 1938, uh, Orson Welles did War of the Worlds, member. The Martians are invading. They were in Pennsylvania, Jim. They were all over. <laughs> this big craft. Probably, you probably heard about it. So I don't know if they were in Pennsylvania, but well, of course they War were. of the Worlds. I mean, we had yeah. Mars, Pennsylvania. They were here. <laughs> Were they there? Okay. So, you know, I think you downed a few of those craft and they're on display right now. But um, War of the Worlds, so people were listening to this about this this play, right, about Martians, this radio theater, about Martians um, landing on Earth and having these these big, you know, structures they're walking around and stuff like that. Um, And a lot of people believe that. And there was a a study, uh, Professor Cantrell, um, I think from Stanford met with people like right after that with a, his research team and he's interviewing people like, you know, uh, what did, what happened? And, and people authentically were saying like they either saw the Martians, right. Or there were, there were marks out in their field. Farmers, police officers were, were saying, of course, none of this was real. Um, the radio thing was real, but people, but one of the things people did is they, they didn't try to verify it. They just, if they would have turned to a different radio station, they would have learned, right. That it wasn't, broadcast anywhere else but there was a bigger part of that Cantrell said you know everybody back then this was 1938 they knew that Europe was going to war so all what you're hearing the news that you're getting in America is you know Europe is going to go to war World War II is going to start and you're also worried are we going to get news that the U.S. is going to enter the war of course this is two three years before Pearl Harbor but so you, you already had this um, negative um, bias, this negative information bias. You expected the information to be really bad that you're going to get, no matter kind of what it was on a national level. So it was it was easier for people, the, the, the thought, right, between the researchers was it was easier for people to believe these Martians in 1938 because they already expected to get really, really bad news about something that was going on. And that, and that actually plays out because when I when I wrote in School of Airs back in 2019 about the, the on 9-11 in lower Manhattan, 500,000 people were rescued in nine hours when the Twin Towers uh, fell. And and people went to Battery Park. And at that time, it, it was different. It wasn't this, they expected something negative. Like before the, before the Twin Towers, I mean, you know the the 90s i mean the us was powering along pretty pretty well 
right? Um, so people, when they went to the harbor, they expected there would be a rescue force there because they had always kind of seen this growing up, right? That there was the U.S. versus like, you know, the Soviets and whatever. And if anything happened, the, the military would jump in. Um, so it, this, so people went there and they expected this rescue force, but, and those could have just been boaters, like getting off of the water, but they're like, you know, maybe we're next. Right. So, but it, so the mindset was different. So I, I guess where I'm trying to go with that is if you expect bad news, like in it, it started the pandemic, um, every time we got onto our phones, we probably were getting bad news, right? Negative themed news or it was being, we were seeking it out. Like we were just addicted to it. Like Charles Mack talked about that map on his phone where he could see Pittsburgh. And he said, for a week, I'm just like refreshing. <laughs> is my neighbor now, is is there, is this area blue? And, um, you know, what does this mean? Am I going to have to take a different way to work? You know, like literally, are they going to, to shut down these neighborhoods or not have deliveries or, or can realtors no longer show homes in these areas? Or what if after the pandemic, you know, you have to reveal that, yes, someone had COVID who lived in this home, you know, and you're selling the house like today. I mean, all these things like we're just hitting at once. Um, so that is that is the part of understanding, too, at, at 90 days. So if you do the things of face validity, get out, I observed, you do your member check network, you build up that five people. That's a those are big parts of resiliency to this. Um, and once once you burn out, it's really hard to come back from that. Like there are people who will never recover from that. The essential, non-essential. Remember the day in March, all of us woke up and we were essential or non-essential. Um, that destroyed, you know, careers and, and livelihoods and industries, right? Um, and for other people, it, it, it rocketed them forward. I mean, if, if you were already a, a teletherapist for mental health or something, like your business exploded. I talked to a CPA friend of mine who had a few clients like that. And he said it was, it was off the records, you know, for them. But he said, I had a client who was a dentist and, you know, was shut down for at least a month and had no idea how you would start back up and, and this thing and, and said it was, the, it was catastrophic. Um, and then, right. If you're a truck driver, we, we didn't do a parade for truck drivers um, who, you know, were told to work longer hours and, and the way stations were shut down. I interviewed, uh, you know, truck drivers and, and, uh, but we did parades for healthcare workers, for nurses. We had our fire trucks and, and police coming out, even though our police force was socially distanced. And like in Detroit, the police force was down 25% was out with COVID yet. They were told to put on these parades. So this whole essential non-essential is going to be with us for generations. And it's weird. Get this, Jim. When I do presentations about the book, people, half the people do not remember that they were deemed essential or non-essential. They don't remember it at all. And I I thought like that was a unifying thing. It's early in the book. It's like page four. I talk about a barber, Carl Mankey and Oswa, Michigan being deemed non-essential. He was 70 years old. He kept coming to work, right? And the state's trying to shut him down. And so I'll present. And then people don't deny that it happened. But they'll come up afterwards and they'll say, oh, yeah, like I totally uh, forgot. And I said, you didn't forget, right? You blocked it out. Um, we don't forget about those things. I mean, um, <laughs> you blocked it out. So it's this traumatic event for you. Um, I, I was going to say, I'd be it, interested to learn what the ratio of those people who are non-essential who don't remember. It, I mean, that would be a fascinating study, right? I mean, to get into that from a university level. So I I, I think there would be a yeah some really cool lines of inquiry for people doing research on kind of that human condition, as you said, to break it down into that essential and, and non-essential, and if you recall it or not. I mean, for some people, you suddenly became hyper-important, right? Um, and it was a little bit of social cachet and, and things like that. Um, and, and some people admitted it. You know, they, they felt more important than they had at other times in their life. And other people, again, like that, that one dentist who said, oh, my God, I just, you know, maybe chose a profession that is, you know, I, I, I'm in big trouble here. You know, what if they say you can only have X number of patients and you have to have all these expensive processes and, and certifications to remain, uh, you know, a, a sterile virus free dental office. So um, so the, that was a weird thing. I thought it was very important in the book and it's very well done. 
but yet when I present on it, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like waking people up from a dream. And I didn't expect that at all. I thought this would be like so, so much of a unifying thing. So I think it's amazing. Um, but it turned into such a divisive thing now. Like, there's no unification. I mean, you mentioned 9-11 earlier. Like, we all became, oh, not all, right? But it felt like everybody was on board then. But now oh, yeah. it's, it's so divisive that the sky's blue. But 45% of people don't believe that. Right. No, no, you're you're right. Um, so that is, that's a difference, too. I mean, we we... This this chaos event has not unified us, and part of it is. I also wrote about. I know we're getting toward the end. I wrote about um, the committee for national morale, um, and that was it in the start of World War II. It actually, I think it was in '39. Frank Capra, Dr. Seuss. You know the Dr. Seuss books, uh, Ted Geisel. Um, but there were there were the, a, a sophisticated committee put together of propaganda for coming into like World War II in the U.S. And there were these big art displays in museums, like showing people, you know, like gardening in front of their house or getting ready for war. But like people, you know, from kids to adults and all this stuff and the road to victory. You know, if you want to look it up, it's really amazing. And, and how these billboards and, and uh, what you'd see in magazines and, and reels at the start of movies and stuff like that. Um, so it was really this 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 unifying response and people responded to that very well. Um but we don't have anything like that today. I wrote about it in the book. What we should have had in March of 2020 for like a unifying event would have been a, like a fitness and fortitude campaign. So, you know, everybody can log in a portal, right? And whatever fitness things you could do at home. And then maybe if you, you log in for 10 days, you get a discount from your Amazon order or you can do a group thing, right? You can do a competition board, maybe with other family and friends. Um, but that actually existed with the U.S. Army. It was built in 2016, and they could have scaled it out. So I talked about that, too. Like, it wasn't that big of a request to do this, like, to make people feel involved. And and, and the other part is National Institute of Health came out at the start of, of the pandemic. I wrote about it, too. And even Dr. Fauci saying, you know, if you are more physically fit, you're more likely to do better, right, during a, any health event like you're you're less likely to either contract it or if you do contract it you're more likely to survive it if you're more fit so that that was just obvious so where was this there was no committee and there still isn't a committee like we don't have anything now on right gas prices are high inflation why isn't there a committee on like civilian uh uh, uh agricultural resilience like how to if you live in an apartment or you live, you know, residential, um, you know, single house or farm or whatever, how, how can you produce more food, right? How, what are some simple things to do that can increase or how you can use uh, food in, in different recipes, right? More maybe abundant things. Like, why don't we have that? Why isn't there a czar of that? And why don't we have that on the news? You know? So I'm going to interrupt you because I've got to ask this question for, geo-observation, because he's been making me ask it the last few weeks, because we're almost out of time. Yikes. Favorite breakfast? Oh! Uh, <laughs> favorite breakfast? Boy, I, uh, uh, scrambled scrambled eggs and, uh, and bacon and ham. Oh, you're going for it, right? And black coffee, yeah. Well, David, hey, I do appreciate you, and it has been immensely uh, informative, I think. I don't want to say fun tonight, but it's been informative. It's uh, been fun and, and informative, yeah. And uh, but now, uh, what's the what's your website one more time before we run out of time? Yeah, safetyphd.com. So how how you mentioned the show earlier? We got ten. No, we got thirty seconds left. How's the show been doing? Um, what show? My podcast? Yeah. Oh yeah, uh, podcast has been uh, doing well. So I started it back up in uh, twenty twenty one. I did a hiatus when I was writing the book because I needed to put the time in. So. Uh, good, good. Had a show last night. Man, it's been it's been too short. We have to get back. We have a whole bunch of other things we need to talk about sometime. Yeah, yeah. And uh, always an honor. Thank you, sir. And for everybody else, have a good good night and good week. And we'll talk to you soon. I think that's the right time. Maybe. <laughs> oh man, I need to write these things down. No, I'm not there yet. Here we here we go. I'm gonna hit it. I'm gonna hit it for Germantown Runner it's right the now. Man.
thank you for joining us. All right. Are we still show tonight? I hope yeah, you enjoyed I'm playing it. outro music. Take a few moments, oh, subscribe, okay. share, all the fun stuff. You know how to do it. I don't have to tell you. Just uh, be ready for next week. It'll be sooner than you think. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah, right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripotis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.